Hello and welcome to the Motion E podcast. I'm S. Garlic and I'm with Jonathan M. Gitlin, um, who is a journalist about all, all things technology, including road EVs, which is what we're talking about this time uh, for Ars Technica, which is uh, a website for which you tested, uh, Dr. Gitlin, the um, Lucid Air recently. I'm, I'm so interested in that, but... Before we get on to that, um, your Twitter profile picture and your Discord profile picture is Carlos Pache's helmet. Is that your... No. No, no that's not Carlos Pache. That's my helmet, which is was somewhat inspired by his design. Oh, right. Um, but also, also, actually, I suppose more of the... De- if, honestly, more of the design came from the... Um, uh, the lightweight Porsche 908 Spiders that ran the Targa Florio in whichever year it was, 71, 70... The um the three golf the three of them were golf cars and one of them was red and white um and I like the arrow design on that and um, except I wanted to do it in British racing green and safety orange and then after the fact someone pointed out hey that looks a bit like Carlos Pache's helmet you know, which I actually had not known about oh okay um I was going to ask you if that was your favorite F1 era but uh, maybe maybe we can start with what your favorite F1 era is before we get onto more serious stuff um. I, like most F1 fans, maybe it's probably when I started watching. So, ninety-three, late ninety-three, kind of the the V10s, maybe. Um, hmm. so it did make a good noise. Right now, I'm in the middle of rewatching the two. Well, actually, I've always finished rewatching the two thousand four season, which at the time I could not appreciate the magnitude of Schumacher's brilliance at that year. Um, because you know Ferrari were the enemy if you were a British F1 fan because it's yeah. very partisan. Um, I found moving to a different country and listening to kind of a less partisan F1 coverage has made me able to cheer for drivers for other countries, and that becomes much less important to me. But that's an aside. But I say my favourite F1 era probably the V10s because they sounded super cool. I'd be um, quite happy if we did if the sport ditched hybrids. I understand why they're there, but you know because you wouldn't get any. Uh, none of the OEMs would spend any money in F1 if there wasn't some form of electrification. But you know, given how unroad relevant the sport is compared to many other forms of motorsport, I think we should go back to I don't know, three liter V10s or two and a half liter, two point four liter V8s that rev to the stratosphere and just make them light and fast. But, well, um, th- that wasn't on my bingo card for today. Uh, um, EV journalist arguing to bring back V10s, but there we are. You know, um, you uh, learn something, learn something new every podcast, as it were. Yeah, there. Uh, well, I mean, the the good thing is that F1 is um, quite heavily backing the development of carbon neutral synthetic fuels. So as long as the the fuel that you put in them um, doesn't add more carbon to the atmosphere, go for it. I think I think that that allows you to, you know indulge that aspect of the sport uh, is isn't the other issue the uh and um I, I mean the 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 anti-woke brigade will get me for this but is isn't the other issue the problem of like noise pollution and uh you know nature and all that kind of stuff or um are, are we not are we not thinking about that now that uh um now, now that nicola thalston isn't in charge of brand brands hatching any, anymore and that kind of thing um, I mean, I think if it's one weekend at each location a year, I mean, they, you know, even with a 24 race calendar, um, there's only one, you know, US Grand Prix at Austin. So there's only three days they have to listen to the noise. Um, so, no, I think I'm, I'm I think it's OK. Fair play. Fair play. Um, so um... don't get me wrong. I do think you can have motorsport without noise. Um, I like the fact that um, when I go to a Formula E race, I don't have hearing damage. Um 
I have, you know, <laughs> I find it, it can be very tiring if you're a sports car race where there's lots of big V8s and they're, they're blaring for 24 hours. Um, but there was just something chilling about the sound of those V8s, like the first time you hear one or a whole, or the V10, sorry, the first, and particularly the first time you hear a whole pack of them. Mm. Um, that, that was something special, but... It, it does it does seem sad that we're not going to get those days back um i i i i just feel every form of motorsport has to be distinct uh formula e mm-hmm. is what it is it's 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 got it's got that very distinct uh noise people say it's silent it, it isn't obviously it's uh no, they sound uh, and, exactly and they're they're nothing like vacuum cleaners which is always the thing that you get in the comments under youtube videos but uh formula one yeah i i feel like formula one especially if we're getting synthetic fuels it it, it needs it needs to be loud just because it needs to be the most spectacular form of motorsport otherwise um kind of i and i think this is what people are saying about it at the moment in the turbo hybrid era there, there almost isn't a point for it is there there, certainly, the more efficient you are at turning fuel into energy, into motion, sorry, the more efficient you are at turning energy into like motion and not wasting its heat and sound is good. But in terms of the spectacle that you would want from a race series, I think every every race series has to balance, you know, your competing demands of how much do you, how much are you entertainment for like the public? How much are you a venue for technology development? Um, how much are you a, a sporting challenge um and i suppose there's also kind of a marketing side to it which i don't tend to think less about um but yeah i think how you balance the i think f1 oh i'll give them credit for this right now they seem to be interested in kind of playing with how much entertainment they bring back to the sport um and um i think it's, it's been interesting watching old seasons from like 20 years ago and kind of comparing things to now and i think the sport has definitely got um kind of much better in terms of like and it's not perfect but it's got better in terms of kind of respecting the audience as, as something that should be catered to and not just tolerated um like watching 2004 belgian grand prix which mm. arguably should have been red flagged at least twice maybe more than that <laughs> um and they, you know back in those days like nope we got a two-hour window so you just get get out, you lot get out behind the safety car and you keep driving whilst we have eight you know diggers on track and whatever. i was i was gonna say i mean this, all over the place and... i was gonna say i mean this gives me a miller 94 flashbacks but when bernie was at the wheel no race would be stopped for anything would it no no it was crazy and now you know they uh and I think the honestly, I think the the working group that they put in when Liberty took over and they decided to try and do something about um, you know making cars that could race better. I think honestly they've done quite a good job in that. Um, you know, watching again some of the early the 2004 coverage with James Allen and Martin Brundle talking about oh complaining about the fact that cars can't follow each other through corners mm. um, and you know that there's a, you get behind someone and you know it's impossible to overtake and thinking to himself well you know. It only took them another seventeen years just to actually <laughs> fix any of those problems, but they did it eventually. Well, the the, tr- the trouble was they kept fixing it with with political solutions rather than scientific yep. solutions. I mean, like, yep. uh, and any anyone except Max Mosley, who thought groove tires would solve overtaking, um, ha- hasn't spoken up since then. I'm I'm dreading starting two thousand five because that's when they moved. Do you remember they they in order to try and stop Ferrari from being so utterly dominant, they decided right, you can't change tires during a race at all yeah. now. Yeah, which, which is ridiculous. I mean, that was not that. That was crazy. But I think my my least favorite change from that whole era was when the cars would go out in Q three and just burn fuel, kind of driving around for ten minutes on you know the 
least efficient map they could have to try and reduce, you know, burn off some weight and mm. then put in fast laps. I mean, that was just crazy. Yeah, um, and uh, of course it wouldn't happen under the current rules. But um, also, like, uh, I, fair fair play, you much props to you for rewatching the two thousand and four season. Um, I just remember being thoroughly bored through most of it, but I think that might have been because of the you know surface level uh, Ferrari mm-hmm. domination. But then, I th- I think if I rewatched it, I'd realise just how good Jensen Button was back then as well. He, he yep, he did really well. Um, Taku had some great drives. Um, you see Alonso learning. I'm um, getting quite quick. Uh, it's been really interesting. Like I said, I mean, I like I could never, have, I I did not at the time appreciate it for the same reason as you because it was just Ferrari domination, and I kind of felt a bit the same way when Mercedes were winning everything in sight and no one else had had a chance. Just get get got boring. Um, but I'm doing it because Twitter got terrible, and then they killed Tweetbot. So instead of using my time to look at Twitter, I'm watching old F1 instead. That seems to be a more productive use of my minutes. Well, that's excellent. And um, uh, do, do you do you have a collection of season review DVDs? Are you, are you that kind of uh, fan? No, it's the, um, I'm a, uh, the F1 TV subscription service has back, uh, you know, yeah. an archive that goes back. They have every race to the 80s, and then from there it gets a little bit patchy back through the 70s. But um, once you get to kind of, you know, 1990 onwards, they have all of it. Um and then, and you, the cool thing actually is, you can, if you want to, you can turn off the commentary and just have the like the natural effects noises. Mm. So you can just sit there and listen to V8s going around without <laughs> hearing Martin and um, Ted out, uh, Ted Kravitz and James Allen. Yeah, well, I, I I would be quite happy not to listen to Ted Kravitz and James Allen, but that's a different podcast altogether. Um, <laughs> I'd love to hear about your road trip in the lucid air, Jonathan, because oh. uh, it, it it sounds um, thoroughly enjoyable and uh, really pleasant ride. Uh, but uh, you've you've said, uh, I mean, it, it's it's headlined as um, as uh, the 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 startup that was targeting the Mercedes S class, not the Tesla Model X, uh, Model S rather. And it, it's interesting because obviously Tesla was going to be the thing that everyone would compare the lucid air to, but it's actually a much more luxurious beast than that, isn't it? So so that comment was actually from a direct quote from Peter Rawlinson, who was the, who's the CEO and CTO of Lucid. And before that, he was the chief engineer at Tesla when the Model S was being developed. So um, they can definitely say that. Lucid can say that it's, it's, meant, it's aimed at the S-Class. And I think, you know, when I first saw it, I think 2017 they brought a prototype to dc and i checked it out um it was interesting that you know the kind of pitch was well it's mercedes e-class length on the outside but actually it's kind of s-class size on the inside it was very roomy um at that time the rear seats were a bit like sort of like uh, almost like lie flat airline chairs that could recline they were these amazing recliners which yeah. i believe are still being developed but they weren't quite ready and i think lisa needed realized they needed to start selling cars so the ones you can buy right now just have a regular bench seat in the back um, they can say that the aim was, you know, Mercedes, and which is because, you know, the S-Class is, as a, you know, kind of referred to as the world's best luxury car. That's kind of the target that everyone goes for. Um, as much as they can say that, um, it's quite obvious in lots of places that this is, that many of the same ideas that I think that were in the Model S are, are in this car and have been refined. Um, you know, I found it interesting that they have exactly the same length and exactly the same wheelbase, for, for instance, um, hmm. um, which I, maybe that's just pure coincidence. But I mean, 
it might be that Rawlinson decided, you know what, that was a pretty good length that we started off with on that card, so let's let's stick to it because the dimensions were right. Um, whether or not it actually succeeds in out luxurying the German luxury cars, I don't. I'm not entirely sure it does at this point. Um, and actually, I think the the S class isn't its problem. Um, although there's the electric EQS, which is an okay luxury EV, but I don't love it. Um, really, what this car's biggest problem is is the new BMW i7, which is about twenty thousand dollars cheaper, and whilst it's much uglier on the outside, um, has an even better interior, and I think better technology on board and a kind of more fully and when it comes to stuff like infotainment and software um a kind of more fully realized more polished experience for the end user but the lucid was Lucid was really interesting i um as i wrote in the review um we had a reader who lent me a car in december for um an evening and i didn't really get on terribly well with that one um and there uh and lucid saw me talking about it on social media and said oh can we send you a car for a bit longer and see if you actually do like it um and so i drove that a couple of weeks ago um which is which is why you're talking to me today yes indeed um, and um I, I think the first the first thing that people look at or at least lay lay people look at when 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 they, when they look at a new car is the build quality how it feels yeah. to open the doors how it feels to get in uh, if the controls are placed in logical places um th this is a bit different to um you know traditional ICE road car because um it, it's 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 built by a company that would no doubt want to be known as much as a tech company so did you find that everything was in a logical place and that uh, you were able to get set up pretty quickly um yes and no the the layout was quite good the ergonomics i thought were were acceptable um there was a quite a big because it's quite a low car i think something like 54 inches tall um the a pillar is quite um quite sharply angled um and that as it kind of swoops past your head does create a bit of a blind zone um if you're turning if you're in a left-hand drive car if you're turning left um with most of the controls are all touchscreens which is why i'm kind of umming and ahhing about is it good or bad um i think there's there's a bit too much of a reliance on touchscreens which um is most of the industry is doing now and mostly i think it's because it's cheaper to design an interface on a on a screen and when it comes to building a car you're only installing one screen as opposed to you've got to install a screen and a whole bunch of buttons and another control and whatever um so lots of people kind of going the touchscreen only route even though i think there's a ton of data now that says touchscreens are distracting mm. um the fit and finish on the press car was really quite good um there are some physical controls that has proper like physical buttons that you push to make the interior hotter or colder or the fan blow more or less and also a volume knob um, most of the controls are replicated or many of the controls are replicated on the driver's steering wheel so you can um, control things you know you can interact with some things without taking your hands off the wheel uh, although again actually probably not to the same extent that you can with um, the germans um, i think it's something similar with rivian um, with the new startups they're developing their own software their own infotainment systems um and as a result you know i think the there are some features they haven't had a chance to kind of fully implement yet or they're kind of slightly behind the curve compared to um, bmw which is on its eighth generation you know and like if people may remember the original iDrive back in 2000 or whenever and it wasn't very good um and the new one now is is spectacular it has that and mercedes they use they get the same they both use the same voice recognition um stuff from a company called serence 
and it's amazing. You don't need to read the manual anymore. You just say like, hey, BMW or hey, Mercedes, turn on the seat massager or navigate to give it an address or, um, you know, put the car in sport mode or any of these kind of things. And because much of the software is running on the car and not in the cloud, it's behind firewalls, it can do that. But more importantly, it's just actually the, the voice recognition just works amazingly well, um, which is, is something that you haven't <laughs> been able to say really about anything until now. Um, I mean, um, that I think is the future when it comes to interacting with cars, but I'm in a minority there. Um, and maybe your readers or listeners will send angry emails and saying, who's this idiot who says we should talk to our cars? It's a dumb idea. Oh, um, no, I'm, 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 I'm sure, I'm sure they'll, they'll be very happy for your expertise regardless. But uh, just um, as you mentioned BMW and Mercedes, I, I'm really intrigued what, what you think about the exterior styling of uh, the BMW and Mercedes EVs, because I, 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 I had the chance to see an iX uh, BMW iX mm-hmm. in the flesh uh, for the first time recently um having having thought it looked a bit like maybe a uh, you know um B- BMW x6 uh with, mm-hmm. with 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 a few accoutrements I, I realize it doesn't it actually looks a bit more like a really ugly Renault Espace with a fake BMW grill on the front and I I was surprised by this um, I I was I was surprised by by how plasticky and vulgar that fake grill looked on the front uh for example and I I just no, did... it's not, I'm not, I have to, okay it's after correct you though it's not it's not a fake grill they do they hide um all of the sensors behind it it has a self-healing polymer on it. If it gets scratches, it can warm itself up, and then like the surface of it melts a little bit, and then reheals. Um, so, so I would like, say it's, so it, like... it is a challenging car to look at. Uh, yeah. I think it works better in light. If you see one in white or like a sort of light bluey silver, um, I actually have kind of come to quite like it in those colours. But in like the darker shade, shades, um, particularly that maroony red, uh, yeah, it can be quite quite challenging to look at. Um, the the upside is that it from the the inside is much better. So when you're sitting in it, you can't see the outside, um, and it has a wonderful ride. It kind of floats down the road like a bit like a, a bit like the new Rolls Royce, but at a fifth of the price. But it it it, 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 remi- it, remi- it reminds me a little bit of um, it, and you, you you have to you have to forgive the gross national stereotyping, but I do live in Estonia. It it remind, reminds me a bit of what people used used to say about Russian Russians in air, in airport duty free shops. You know the the idea of it costs so much to look that terrible. Um, and I I I just kind of I, I look at that and also a lot of the Mercedes EQ uh, road models and I, and I just think. Mm-hmm. Um, how how can it be that styling departments that have you know done 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 so well for decades can you know so crucially misunderstand what it means to design a good looking car uh, when it comes to designing an EV? I mean, Mercedes seem to have just thrown the styling book out of the window that uh, did them so well with ICEs and. I don't know. Just, just created something that looks much more vulgar, in my opinion, when it comes to the EQs. Um, and I, I, I doubt very much that my opinion matters to why they're not selling in the numbers, which everyone thought they would. But something's, something's not right with the Mercedes EQ looks, in my opinion. What do you think about that? Um, I, I quite like the EQE. I like the smaller one. Um, but I know what you mean. They, they, they wouldn't be my first pick in terms of aesthetics. And actually they do a really irritating thing with the brake pedal that would probably put me off buying one until they fix it. Where, so they, um, like the Lucid and uh, Tesla, the EQE doesn't um, regen brake when you use the brake pedal. 
So it's all to do with lifting off the accelerator. And the more you lift off, the more it regens the motors and you slow down. Mercedes, in their infinite wisdom, decided that as that process happens, as the car decelerates, the brake pedal would automatically move towards the firewall by the same amount of travel as it would do if you had used it to summon up that level of deceleration. Does that make sense? Kind so of. At your foot, so your foot's not on the brake pedal because you're just doing one pedal driving. Hmm. And you lift your... And, and as, as you do that, the brake pedal moves. And then you realize, well, um, the... I'm only decelerating it. I think 0.3 G is the maximum for regen braking. And that's not that's not quite enough. And I need to hit the brakes now. Otherwise, I'm going to crash into something. And so as you go for the brake pedal, it's an inch away further, it's an inch further away from your foot than it should be <laughs> because they've moved it away from you. And it's the most baff. I don't know a single person outside of Mercedes who can, who can tell me why this is a good thing. And I've asked the chief engineer about it. And he explained to me that we, the reason we did it was because it mimics the amount of travel your foot would, you know, the pedal would go through if you had used your foot to decelerate the car the same amount. I said, I mean, you know, yeah, <laughs> okay, I understand. I understand that. But still, it doesn't seem to you to be a bad idea that the target has moved. No, I'm, I'm hoping that gets fixed in a software up update. But that that behavior would, that that's kind of my hugest complaint with Mercedes EVs. Um, BMW... Some of the, their styling is, I mean, it's challenging these days. I think the the AXM is the one that really gets me, which um, is this very expensive plug-in hybrid they're about to start selling. That um, head-on looks like it's one of the pigs from Angry Birds because it has this enormous grill. <laughs> um, but at the same time, the same designer also gave us the the new um, BMW MV8 hybrid race car, which I actually think looks quite good. Um, but... I don't know. I find, to be honest, I find taste when it comes to how cars look is, is a very subjective thing. And so when I'm writing a review, um, I try and concentrate on that kind of very little because that's the easiest thing, I think, for readers to um, tell you you're wrong about because it's just the way I think that people, you know, see these things. Yeah, um, of course. But to get back on the original subject, I think the, the outside of the Lucid Air, I think, is absolutely stunning. I think is much better looking than... Um, really any other kind of comparably expensive ev other than the porsche Taycan. oh it, it looks looks beautiful and um it, in in my opinion it looks like what we thought an ev would look like in mm -hmm. 2023 when we were in 1993 i did i saw in the comments actually someone pointed out it had um shades of peugeot 508 about it oh yeah yeah, just because of that um, high slat grill at the top and the, the mm -hmm. sort of those sort of aggressive, um, you know, squinting headlights. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but um, it, it's it's got a lot of the features that I think um, uh, the higher end EV drivers will be used to. Think things like um, you know the the hidden door handles that that come out presumably when you mm -hmm. approach the car um uh, you you mentioned that you got the uh, the 21 inch wheels when the 19 inches were obviously more efficient but mm -hmm. uh, you, you also said with a with a 400 mile plus range that doesn't matter too much um do you think range is a little bit of an overblown question with cars such as this given that no one is ever going to have a 200 mile commute um i yes so yeah, i do yes personally i think people make far too much of an issue about it i think the um once i think it's a problem range anxiety really is a problem it's much more of a problem for someone who's never driven an ev um particularly someone who hasn't lived with it at the same time um i will say that doing long distance drives in a non-tesla ev right now in the us and probably in europe from what i hear too um can be an extremely frustrating experience 
Um, last summer, we so each year we drive from DC up to Watkins Glen for the six hour IMSA race. And I like mm. to do it in an EV now because there are just enough charges to make it work along the route. Um, last year, I would say I, I did it in a BMW I, iX. And in addition to the time spent stationary, plugged in, charging, actually getting electrons to flow to the battery, I probably wasted at least an hour on. So it's about it's about five and a half hours, five hours nonstop driving time. Um, we were probably stationary for an hour total charging, and then probably another forty-five minutes arguing with the chargers or phoning up, waiting on the phone, trying to get tr- tech support to work out why it wasn't working. Mm. Um, and every EV driver I know, every so every journalist I know who covers EVs has a story like that, multiple stories like that. And um, there's, the reliability of the charging infrastructure is still difficult enough that there are still horror stories, um, and that we do need to get past it. At the same time, most people, I think it's a vast percentage of journeys are people drive 40 miles a day or less. And, you know, in that regard, most of what you need could be done with a BMW i3, um, you know, or a Mini. Uh, But there's a kind of temptation, I think, to base buying decisions in the same way that in America, lots of people buy pickup trucks because they think about, well, once or twice a year, I might need to go and put some sheets of lumber in the back. So I better buy a pickup truck. Um, I think people also make car buying decisions on other edge cases like, well, once a year, I have to drive 2000 miles. So, um, you know, I will sacrifice what would probably be a much better car for the rest of the time for that one off as opposed to just renting a car or whatever. So, so let's let's talk a bit about what what it's like to drive because uh, I mean the, the the acceleration and the the torque is uh, something that people know all about these days uh, with with uh, EVs. But uh, what what else caught your attention in terms of the driving dynamics? Uh, for, first of all, uh, what, was it more like a sort of wafty barge or was it quite sporty in its dynamics? Um, it wasn't particularly sporty. The steering was pretty lifeless. Um, I find that's a problem with most most new cars as we moved to electric power steering away from hydraulic a lot of the steering feel went away some some companies are starting to to be able to program that back in but we're not it's not perfect um, but the yeah the the lucid air isn't a car that i would take on the long way home and i didn't wake up at 5 a.m and take it out for a drive on the twisty roads that i know you know when they'd be empty um it, because it it doesn't kind of speak to me like that if that makes sense hmm. um spent quite a lot of the time in its slowest mode um and it's a very easy car to drive slowly around the city. You know, where I live around here, it's 20 and 25 mile an hour zones all over the place. And actually, it's a super easy car to drive around that slowly in, um, which I think is good for a, a you know, car that's going to be driven in the city a lot of the time. Um, if you put it in swift and um, stand on the brake pedal, and then a blue bear appears on the dash and says launch mode's ready. Oh, sorry, stand on the brake pedal and then press the accelerator. The blue bear shows up and then you lift the foot off the brake. Um, you know, it will rearrange your internals the way that most super powerful EVs with 800 horsepower <laughs> and 1,000 newton meters of torque will do, um, which is childish and uh, probably not great when you have anyone else in the car, but from time to time, um, it does put a smile on my face. Um, but it is, you know, I mean, the, the in terms of performance, um, the, you know, I think if you want a performance EV, um, the Porsche Taycan or the BMW i7 was was much were both much more engaging to drive and in different ways, um, but you know for for driving enjoyment and a car that would make you want to take the long way home, um, I don't think the Lucid is that. 
Um, but then again, I wouldn't say that about a Mercedes S-Class either. So, you know, I think that that's probably not what they were going for. Um, so, there is, there's this Sapphire variant they've developed that um, sets fast lap times places. I don't know, I haven't hmm. driven that yet. So so, um, so it's 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 giving me the impression of maybe something that uh, perhaps is designed for like a California tech bro to drive around the Bay Area in a very calm yeah. way. Is that is that right? Yep, yeah. yeah, definitely. I think. Mm. Uh, well, I, I mean, I could see it working. You know, uh, um, I could see it working in a European or Asian tech bros too. But yes, definitely. I think the um, yeah the 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 California technology early adopter. I think is the. Um, probably the target market and I, think that... it, I think it does relatively well at that i think um you know it, it, it like i said earlier it has does a lot of the things that tesla did when it first came out um but you know having been refined through 10 years and um it's kind of executed much better and then you know plus it's much it's generally a more luxurious car the fit and finish is better the design of the interior etc yeah, and and of course, um, we um, we we in Europe think of Lucid as a uh, you know brand new startup company, which it is to a certain extent, but it it's not as young as we think. I mean, it it's been involved with uh, Formula E on uh, spec parts in the gen in the mm-hmm. gen, gen three car. Yeah, and they're um, they're the tech. So originally, the company was called Atiba, um, and then they they kind of I don't know whether they spun out the car company as Lucid or just rebranded, um, but the you know they. That kind of motorsports know-how um, is infused into the powertrain, which I guess is quite cool. I suppose it's probably one of the few EVs you can actually say that about. Um, and you know, for kind of car nerds who do stuff like idolize the McLaren F1, you know, because that they went and raced one of those and it won Le Mans the first time out. Mm. You know, to have that kind of association with racing is kind of neat to think. But then again, at the same time, it's Formula E, so I suppose it's a, it is a smaller crowd of people who would think that that's cool yes although it's a rare brain like ours to appreciate formula e although i i think i think that uh that that halo effect as you mentioned before we recorded the podcast it it's something that lasts with motorsport regardless of the so pe- people don't people don't think about uh le mans 95 i think it was as um mm-hmm. as, as as being you know an incredibly depressed time for sports car racing they think about mclaren winning it and finish finishing uh third fourth and fifth as well so i i think that uh if um uh, um if if you have a relationship with Formula E and if Formula E goes on to be successful, you know I still have my fingers crossed. Um, then, mm-hmm. um, then uh, that that's go- that's going to look good. Also, sources at the race uh, told Sam Smith that um, last year that Lucid had at least done a base level feasibility study on forming a Formula E team, and that that wouldn't necessarily be a conflict of interest on them making spec parts. So, I, 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 they, they pretty much sort of hunkered down and decided to focus on making the air work. But uh, it's something I, that could be exciting in the next five to ten years, I guess. I think right now their main problem is they need to, um, they need to build and sell lots of cars, and I think they, they don't need the distraction of motorsport yet but it would be cool to see if they did do it um you know particularly given tesla's um total disinterest in anything you know competition related um be good if you know and rivian don't really make anything suitable what with their trucks and suvs um well you you could you could say that uh, elon musk is destroying his reputation without motorsport quite nicely 
<laughs> True. So Lucid, a a um, company that's been that's been around and um, has has worked in various capacities around EVs for some time, and also they they've got that uh, huge amount of funding now from the uh, from the majority shareholders, I believe, the Saudi Public Investment Fund. Now, mm-hmm. um, uh, obviously, that is. Uh, we we've got to say probably a um, part of the whole greenwashing initiative around sustainable cities etc in Saudi Arabia but it's also something that's uh, probably helped lucid to create a much much better car than they could have done without that money isn't it um i mean without the money there wouldn't be a car at all i think it's as simple as that 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 the and it the reason that we've only that the car is i mean really had things gone well um, they wanted to go in production in 2019, but it took took two three years to actually line up the fun, you know financing to actually start building cars. Um, so I really think it's you know it's it's you know more fundamental than the car wouldn't be wouldn't be as nice. It just it wouldn't exist. Um, and I don't assume at some point they might need to raise more money. Um, I don't think they're quite. I think Rivian is better capitalized. I think. Um, I should probably this is the sort of thing I would have to look up. I well, I, I was I was I was going to ask about this because, the, for for example, there is a general assumption that Volvo Stroke Polestar is bulletproof because of its association with Geely, which is uh, this amazingly wealthy um, um, parent company. Um, but uh, I kind of assumed that if Lucid was in a relationship with the Saudi PIF, that it could almost afford to have a few years of sales failure as long as it picked up after that um, i mean what what sort of a benefactor are they do they demand instant I, I, results I, you know, I have no idea that you're, you're we're now far outside of my comfort zone mm, here okay. so I, I wouldn't even want to hazard i guess um the we don't don't really focus much on the business side of things um for our audience they're not that's not really why people come to us sure so sure I'm not comfortable commenting Sure, but uh, so coming back to that, uh, I think you said four hundred and fifty mile range on the uh, on 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 the Lucid Air. Um, yeah, the, the twenty one inch wheels actually technically the EPA says four sixty nine. Um, I don't think I would get anywhere close to there. I it's not. I didn't find the car. So the EPA rated at four miles, four point one miles per kilowatt hour, or maybe it's even four point six. Um, and I got average three over I think three hundred ish miles. Um, and then the car actually that I had driven earlier in the, the, the end of last year, um, I checked the lifetime stats and over 1,200 miles, that car had also only averaged three miles per kilowatt hour. Um, so I think to get the EPA number, you have to spend your whole time in, in the gentlest acceleration setting and actually be really very gentle when you take off, um, which most people are too impatient to do. And, and I think, as I mentioned in the review, honestly, because the battery's big enough um, and it is still quite efficient, um, and it charges really fast. Um, I didn't really worry about kind of be as efficient as possible. Um, and so I just sort of drove it normally. Um, that said, I think driving it the way I drove it normally, you'd probably, you'd, you, you might get a 350 mile range, which I think is still pretty good. Um, I think, you, but, but I think to get kind of more than 400, you have to work quite hard. Yeah, and um, it, it's it's also got I notice a panoramic glass roof, which is uh, so, yeah. something that I, I think we first saw in the car world on the on the Renault Avantime, which uh, mm-hmm. se- se- seemed seems so revolutionary back in the day, and um, sold about twelve cars in total, I think, if I'm joking. But uh, um, it, certainly it, not many, more than those. I saw one. I was back in Europe last summer, I think, and I saw one driving, or maybe it was the year before, and I got super excited. 
I, I, I just anyone. I was with some American journalists and I don't think any of them knew what an Avon team was, but I was like, look at that. Renault yeah. Team. I, I just think if Renault released the Avon team in Velsatis now, then they, uh-huh. they would they was they would sell plenty more because people are used to that design language. But the panoramic when, roof when was running I mean maybe he's still running the design department, but certainly they used to in the two thousands, they used to come out with the best concept cars. Yeah. Just really interesting kind of exterior and interior detailing, um and sort of quirky three seaters and all sorts of Yeah. Well Love that that's that's how cars like the Twizy ended up in production, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. But uh, so that that panoramic roof, um, how does it work? It 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 looks like you can adjust it so that it's shaded or it's not, depending on your uh, uh, your wish. No, I think it's just it's permanently kind of tinted. The higher up you get, the more it's tinted. I didn't see any way to alter that. Um, and actually, most so American product planners at car companies are convinced that Americans all want full length glass roofs now. So it becomes quite hard to. Um, they won't even let you special order a car without one now. Um, you know, it's just included in the mandatory options pack. Um, and a lot of the times they don't bother putting a screen or anything in there. So, you know, when the sun beats down on you, it gets really hot inside. The Lucid actually did a really good job, I think, of the level of tint and UV absorption and whatever, because um, it actually never felt kind of like I was being baked under a magnifying glass in that car, uh, which which I think is good. The At the same time, though, the, the I would say that there was, from looking in the rear view mirror, the shape of the rear screen and that that curvature caused quite a lot of distortion um, when you look out the back. I suppose that's not really the glass roof, that's the glass rear window. Um, but yeah, I didn't find the roof too bad. Um, I think that the level of tint was good, um, that even on a really bright sunny day you don't get blinded um, and the cabin didn't get too hot, which they have a tendency to do. Hmm. I, I began recording this podcast thinking that I was going to be talking about how it stacked up against the Taycan, but as, as soon as you said that it was a it was a much more it, it was much less sporty and much calmer and more luxurious ride, that made me think that that's not really what Lucid wants to compare itself against at all. No, I I think yeah I think the Taycan is um, a a my favourite current EV. I think money, no object. I would buy one of those, um, but it's that's a very different car. I would say the closest things. It, it's the the air is much closer to an EQS or um, a Model S. Well, an EQS really, because the Model S doesn't have that many creature comforts, um, or an i7. Yeah, the Taycan I think is much. It, it, that's a much more focused driver's car, um, and that's really, really. I mean, the way I think of the Taycan is it's kind of like an electric 928 with two extra sets of, with two extra doors in it so you can use the back seats hmm. um but yeah they i i was also i mean originally when you know kind of reading the stats of, as i've been following the development of the lucid um over the past few years you know um top speed they you know they did uh, high speed testing at um, the transportation research center's um test track in ohio and um one of the alpha prototypes was able to set a same top speed i think they did like 231 miles an hour which you know is the same top speed as the McLaren <laughs> F1, um, and you know the 0 to 60 time at three seconds and the Ativa link, and so I suppose at some point I you know thought well maybe it would be a you know good driver's car, but I was actually I was quite um, surprised driving the initial one and then kind of that I knew what I was expecting for the more recent drive. Um, it's definitely not a you know grab it by the scruff of the neck and um hmm. hoon over the back roads kind of car it's just yeah that's that's not really what they're going for i think 
So, um, what 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 sort of if if you were to sort of craft a buyer persona, what what sort of person do you think is in the market for a Lucid Air? Because uh, it, it's presumably someone who doesn't mind not having the badge recognition and do, doesn't mind not having the sort of car park bragging rights for people who don't know about it. Right. I think they. I mean, they tend to be um, people. I think who are very interested in technology um, and early adopters. Um, and I think they see that you know this is. Um, it does have some very cool new technology that like not lots of other people aren't doing. Um, and I think they probably want, you know, looking for the sort of latest and greatest. And also they have the, you know, the means to be able to pay for it, I think. Because I mean, as you, as we spoke about earlier, it's not a cheap car. Um, I think that if you don't want the assisted driving stuff, um, the Dream Drive Pro, I think they call it, you, it starts at about 138 now, which is a lot of money. Um, and uh, yeah. the, the the other thing uh, you mentioned that you were impressed by, and um, I, I was impressed by it too, because I've had plenty of charging troubles while driving EVs on this side of the Atlantic, was the um, the, the fact that it was so incredibly easy to just get yeah. a charger to work with it. Yeah, I, that really was, that was a huge, I mean, as I said earlier, you know, every time I've done, I've often, with a lot of EVs that I have to review when I go and take them fast charge, there's problems. Um, I remember on the first drive for the BMW i7, in um, the, you know where BMW we brought a whole bunch of people to Scottsdale in Arizona, and that's where we you know that's where they did the first drives. Um, and I took it to a charger there, stopped charging after eight minutes. I came back and tried to talk to one of the BMW engineers, figuring, ha, oh, finally someone who I can explain this problem to, and he can actually tell me what happened. And I talked them through what had gone wrong, and they looked at me and like, yeah, we've been having that problem with those chargers the last three weeks. Don't know why it happens. Shrugged. So you know, even the people that make these cars don't always know what's going on the fact that the lucid just worked when i plugged it in and it um it uses a protocol called plug and charge so you don't need to log into the charger with a key fob or you don't have to swipe anything it's just the car talks to the charger the charger talks to the car they handle the billing and turns on and it just worked um and it's that shouldn't be a remarkable story in 2023 about electric cars but it is and uh, for, for your one hundred and thirty thousand uh, dollars, do you feel that you're getting? It sounds like you're getting good build quality, but do, do you think that uh, looking forward, drivers will like the reliability of this car? Um, I am the, so that's reliability is something that it's very difficult for me to talk about car reliability because I mostly only ever drive new cars. Um, I will say that the 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 car that our reader had in december was not quite as well put together as the press car um and i you know have know that there are other people who get cars delivered and then have to go through kind of remedial work um which i think is probably to be expected i think lucid made something like i think they made seven or eight thousand cars last year which is not very many um you know i think we saw when with tesla when it was ramping up um you know at that stage you, you know you're Quality control is not perfect. Um, so, you know, I have heard a bunch of stories that, you know, cars come and need remedial work. Um, as for, like, long-term reliability, I, honestly, I don't know. Um, I would hope so, but uh, luxury cars, honestly, in general, are not always the most reliable. So, um, we'll find out, I suppose. Well, indeed. Long, but... 
and uh, I, I do want to spend a, some, a, a short amount of time going through some of your other articles that you've written for okay. Ars Technica because there's some really fascinating stuff there. Um, one of them says uh, Tesla is going to recall 362,758 cars because uh, in, in the headline it says full self-driving beta is dangerous. Now, I spoke to Ryan Eric King from Jalopnik um, about a year and a half ago about full self-driving. This this whole sort of um, on-the-road beta test uh, that Tesla has uh, sort of um, quietly or not so quietly rolled out with full self-driving, it's turned into a bit of a disaster for, for the brand name, hasn't it now? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a disaster since day one. Um, I had someone that actually, that now, now, now in the comment thread, the defenders will, I had one person in that th- discussion thread to that article say that they liked their they liked the fact they had fsd beta on their car because it would allow them to have a couple of drinks and then drive home and the car would look after them Good which Lord. is one of the most shocking things i've read this year um i mean i think that says it all um it's about time this system i'm surprised that nitsa hasn't banned it outright at this point considering how many open investigations there are into the various different failings of tesla's various different adas systems i'm Um, i i mean i i know that the various arms of the federal government don't necessarily always work together but i wonder if there is a reticence to completely throw the book at an elon musk company when spacex is doing so much for u.s space exploration and it's as an agency you know um is remains on friendly terms with the company with, with you know um the car companies and is not terribly antagonistic generally um i think that's the i don't think the spacex has got anything to do with it i think mm. it's um i mean there's probably more reticence to go after elon musk because he has a giant loudspeaker um and you know when he when the ntsb chair um made some remarks about um about autopilot or fsd beta last year um, you know, she was brigaded off Twitter. So, I mean, that's probably, you know, if anything, it's the same kind of chilling effect that everyone has when it comes to um, his companies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, we, we were talking about Toyota uh, just before we started recording. And um, we, we were talking about the sort of, well, you, you could argue slightly confused policy regarding um, um, how far in on um, on EV production they are and uh, to to what extent they're actually interested in being a BEV manufacturer. Um, wh- where, do, where do we stand at the moment with Toyota, who still seem so associated with petrol-electric hybrids? Um, I mean, honestly, I think they've, they've, they got left behind. And, and the, one of the big stories over the coming years is if you don't, if you don't have enough battery con- like contracts signed now for battery supplies over the next five, eight years, you're not going to be able to make the EVs that your customers want you to make and that you have to make to satisfy, you know, um, CO2 regulations and the rest of it. And I think Toyota has been left behind in large part there because, um, you know, uh, uh, an absence of supplies uh, or raw materials or resources um, and probably also some corporate resistance. I mean, I, like I said before, we, when we were chatting before the um podcast started um you know they'll i think their standard argument is they'll say well we could use you know the same amount of batteries to make many more plug-in hybrids so we'll just do that instead and that has a more immediate effect on um co2 reduction um which i mean i suppose there are pluses and minuses to that argument um Mm. i think at the same time i think you probably do both you know um you whilst they can make that argument i think if you look at 
the, the first EV that they have brought out, the BZ4X. Um, it's not a terribly inspiring vehicle. I mean, it's this it's the sort of lack, it's quite lackluster in the way that the, you know, compliance cars that we saw 10 years ago were. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think they have, they have a long way to go. Um, but there's a new, you know, Akio Toyota just stepped down. There's a new um, CEO um, and they have, I think, in the same way that BMW, there was a, um, a change at the top at BMW recently because of, um, you know, not moving fast enough on the BEV transition. I, it's probably what we're seeing at Toyota too now. But uh, it, it it does seem like there is uh, inertia in the bigger car companies in in term in terms of re- in terms of releasing their more exciting models more generally. Um, I saw the other day my first uh, uh, VW ID Buzz. That that's that's something that was a concept car, I believe, a decade ago, and it almost didn't get made. Um, wh- what do you think it is in terms of the groupthink at the top of these car companies that sometimes doesn't recognise a good idea? Um. I think the well, I mean, so the the, the that minivan. I mean, those, that, they did four different concepts starting in the first one was two thousand and one, I think. Um, there was like Bully and Buddy was the, and then and then the ID Buzz, and there was one other one. Um, with that, it was a case of the until they until there was a business case for it, they the the, the they wouldn't sign off on it. Um, I mean, I can tell you that the engineers really wanted to make a business case for the electric. June buggy that VW followed the buzz up with um, the next year in 2018, um, and they were the engineers were desperate to try and find a, a business case for it. And you know, it's great that you can make this concept, but what's the market for a fifty thousand dollar electric June buggy? It's not, it's not really very big. On the other hand, the market for a fifty to sixty thousand dollar electric minivan that looks like a nineteen sixties bus, um, you know, there is a business case you can make for that. Um, I yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Um, it it's it certainly does, and uh, th- thank you. I'll I'll just um just go through one other um, of your stories, which um, mm-hmm. it, it, it amuses me um in some ways because, um, I'm I'm finding out more and more about uh, GPT three and uh, and the future GPT four and uh, w- what OpenAI will bring. Um and. I'm 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 also looking at uh, things like uh, the the fact that you can now develop your own AI um uh, locally to yourself and it, it's fascinating what is possible to do with a homebrew AI. Well, Sony and Polyphony Digital have developed um what they say is an almost unbeatable motorsport AI and and they're putting it in Gran Turismo 7. Uh this yep. is this is GT Sophie and it can learn everything uh, according to your article from tactics strategy and racing etiquette as well as driving incredibly fast um my, my question to you uh, is can we tell lawrence stroll about this to maybe replace his son at aston martin um i don't think it works driving real cars i think it only works in gran turismo shame but actually they, uh, it, uh, the first they published it in nature last year um where they basically they raced sophie against a bunch of top level gt players um you know Vin- the vincent gallows of this world um, and the AI was not only able to beat them, um, but it found lines that never occurred to the human drivers. And they would study replays and realize, huh, like you can take that, like that works. Um, now, a year later, they're putting it in the game for, um, I think, the next five or six weeks. Um, and there are different, there's, you can try it at different levels. So, like, you know, there's a novice version that you probably will be able to beat. And then, you know, the, the expert level that, um, 
you know, unless you're in the running for the Nations Cup, you probably probably will get embarrassed. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that the. I'm not sure how applicable. I mean, I don't know how you. If you wanted to translate it to a real world car, you'd have to write, I suppose, an interpretation stack that fed real world sensor data input into it and trained it on on that kind of thing. Um, but. I'm sure it'll get there eventually i don't know and, um, i don't want to see ai racing i mean robo race tried to get off the ground and it's not really gone not really not really thrilled people that that much i think they're going to need to work on the spectre like why i'm not sure people would necessarily going to want to watch ai race each other uh, but that's just me um I, I thought some of the ideas they were starting to play with like virtual obstacles on track and things were interesting and i think their idea was to do like human um like a split you know combo times between humans and ais but um i don't know we'll uh the jury's still out yeah i i, I was thinking about this because uh, you, you like me are probably old enough to remember robot wars being a huge mm-hmm. hit on british tv um yep. and uh yeah, those, were, I, those were remote controlled those absolutely were, you know, you watch people use robots so. and i think if those robots were entirely ai then nobody would watch that mm-hmm. yep uh, and i think that's uh, the feedback i ha- have gotten from you know, talking to people in the racing world and race fans about robo races that there was very little interest among any of them. Um, so it would have to, uh, it's the sort of thing I think they would probably have to go out and build a new audience from somewhere. But, as opposed uh, to, you know, co-opting or, um, um, you know, co-opting the existing race audience or becoming another series that, you know, existing race fans add to their list of things they watch. But so, so according to your article, GT Sophie is uh, time limited as it's purely a tester, so that they can improve their in-game AI. So for uh, yes, so, so Sony, um, end of March. right? So um, um, is is the time limit because of simply the amount of money it costs to process that level of AI? Oh, well, I, I honestly, I again have no idea. I think it's they're just adding it as a limited feature just to get. Um, Probably not to have to continue supporting it, I would assume. Um, but honestly, beyond that, I don't know. Um, I did, didn't have a chance to talk to anyone about this story because I, I wrote it last week whilst I was traveling. So it was just a, really an update to the year before mm. piece, um, which is kind of a longer piece about this, you know, what actually Sophie was and how they'd uh, developed it and proved that it was as good as it is. But as as much as it's exciting for me, um, I I do feel a little element of sadness as well because it reminds me of uh, when uh, in 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 chess when 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 IBM's Deep Blue first managed to beat Gary Kasparov, and it, it just made me think: well, if a computer can do that, then in a sense, there's almost less point in human competition because one of the reasons I admired Gary Kasparov so much as a chess player and one of the reasons I admire Lewis Hamilton so much as an F1 driver now is because some of the things they do look like almost the limits of what you could do with machinery. And uh, if if a computer's going out and beating anything, then it almost renders some of that pointless, doesn't it? Um, There's always... Uh, I think people will always be interested in... Um humans competing against humans well uh the here's an analogy i went to the 2014 miami epre maybe it was 15 i think it's 2014 Hmm. and the most exciting race that weekend was the formula schools event where these school kids built like these i don't know two horsepower little electric races um and that race honestly was way more thrilling than the full formula e race um but the cars were super slow and you know they did like two laps or one lap um 
I think there's there's just something about competition. I think that people will enjoy. Um, I'm not necessarily. I don't think that the. You know, I mean, there, as long as you've had racing games, there've been AI opponents in them. Um, I think in this case, it's just one that you know they they've been able to they've used machine learning, um, to make it really good. But no, I don't. I don't. I don't think it subtracts from the um, the wonder of human competition. All right. Well, it's been lovely to have you on the Motion E podcast. Uh, Jonathan M. Gitlin oh, is. Jonathan M. Gitlin is the writer for Ars Technica. Uh, you can find the website arstechnica.com, um, and um, I uh, and uh, you can you can also follow them through social media as well. Um, it's been lovely to have you on to hear your thoughts about the Lucid Air and other things uh, currently cropping up in automotive technology. And uh, also, I know you're not doing well, so get well soon. Thank you very much. Great to chat to you.